like the, the glory of God's light, it shines, yet we can't see it. And the truth is, this something, isn't something on our own that we can change or that we can fix. Like we can't just like open our eyes and see. Um, every other religion, every other philosophy, in the end they say, hey, you have to find a way to heal yourself, maybe by simply trying harder to fix that problem in your life, or, or maybe just become better. And if you become better, then you can alleviate that problem. And I was thinking about this, and I, was thinking, I have a younger brother who's an optometrist over in Harrisburg. And I was like thinking, what if his practice, what if people walked in and like, can't really see well? And he's like, oh, have you, tried, have you just tried looking harder? Right? You're like, like oh, what in the world, right? Have you tried seeing yet? Like how insulting, how infuriating, like how ignorant or even incompetent would that be for a doctor to look at someone and say, hey, have you tried seeing? Have you tried looking harder? Yeah, isn't this what we do? Like when we deny the gospel being a gospel of grace, when we think I must, and then fill in the blank with anything, I must do. And what's also really special as you read this, um, if you were to look over also in your Bibles, you can kind of see in chapter 9, what's amazing is Jesus often chose to illustrate these eternal yet conceptual spiritual realities through like supernatural concrete demonstrations. Like what he teaches here today in John chapter 8, he actually demonstrates in the next chapter over. Like in the next chapter, Jesus, like after he says, I'm the light of the world and that's where we're going to be today, he then goes and he heals this blind man. He restores his sight. And as we look at that man, we, we realize the problem wasn't that light wasn't shining around this person. It wasn't like external, perpetual darkness that he was walking in. Rather, the problem was with him, right? He couldn't see. And so Jesus came and he restored his sight. And in this chapter, one before Jesus does this action, Jesus is teaching on this. He says, Jesus says, I am light. Like, but he also says what our condition is. He says it's blindness, that we, we, our hearts are darkened and we're dead in sin. And then he shares what he came to do, like so we can see and so we can live, like how we can have this light of life that he talks about. And so we're going to start here in verse 12. Um, I'm going to read verse 12, and just so you don't panic, I um, think you're going to be here forever. We're going to spend about two-thirds of our time in one verse, because I know that can go sometimes like, wow, we've been here for a while in one verse. How long are we going to be? So I just want to get that out ahead of time so you're not like looking at your watch just wondering. Um, so let's read verse 12 together. It says, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay. So to truly understand what Jesus is saying here is you actually need to know where he is when he says this. Uh, so, so where's Jesus? Like you might remember if you were here when you guys walked through John chapter seven, uh, he's making the second I am statement now and he's in a very particular place that's really important uh, to understand the context of this statement. And this word again, uh, it's in your Bible as well, it's really key actually to figuring this out because John, what happened was he essentially broke away from this narrative or this account and this dialogue that happened in John chapter seven but now he's bringing us back to it. So this word again, it's like keying us to go back in John chapter seven. And so when we do, and we go look in chapter seven, we're reminded that he's in Jerusalem and he's in the Feast of Tabernacles. They've all come together. The city of Jerusalem is filled with Jewish people, Israelites, celebrating and remembering the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Feast of Tabernacles, what's that, right? Like, well, there's three main Jewish feasts. There's Passover, there's Pentecost, and then there's this one, Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, it was seven days long, and it took place at harvest time, and it was most simply meant to remember God's provision for the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. So they would do certain things. It was called tabernacles, or maybe in your Bible it's called booths. You've heard it that way before. They would construct these temporary booths, and they would actually live in these to remember how God provided shelter as they wandered in um, the wilderness. 
Or in chapter 7, Jesus references water, right? And they would pour out water during this feast to remember the time when they were thirsty. And so Moses struck the rock and God provided water. But for our time today, and really of great significance for this feast, is how light was incorporated into this celebration. So to really understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the light of the world, you got to understand how light was incorporated into the Feast of Tabernacles. Like every night during this week-long feast in the temple in Jerusalem, they would light this massive candelabra. That's a really big word, fancy word, and to be honest, I had to look up what it means. Um, As Jordan said, I'm from Harrisburg, and we're like a Casey's is still my coffee shop kind of place. And so like, we don't have like vocabulary for these type of furnishings where I'm from. Like I was trying to think like, how do you define my level of classiness? And uh, I think the best way to illustrate is like this current compromise between Brandy and I, that the deer antler gets to be mounted on the wall for fall only. Like we're that kind of family, right? Like we're seasonally redneck. That's maybe the best way to define it. And so there's this hope that this could grow into like early winter bow season, but there's mixed feelings right now. I think it's, the decorum is very nice and fitting with reindeer decorations. She thinks it um, maybe not as quite festive sends some mixed signals to our kids. And so what's happening there? Uh, but kidding aside, like kidding aside, it's helpful to know what this thing is, this candelabra, right? Uh, it was of massive proportions and it had these huge lamps, so much so that when it was lit, it would flood the entire temple. But not only that, rabbinic tradition actually tells us, rabbis have recorded that the temple would not only be flooded with light, but the whole city. So it flooded all of Jerusalem. And again, this is where I'm from. This is where you guys are from too. Like the only thing I could picture when I was thinking of this is like driving by Menards at dusk. You know, like the light display just pouring out the windows, Um, contextualizing, right? So that's what I'm picturing here. Just this mass light that would go through and flood the city. And so they would do this. They would light these giant lamps. And when they did, the orchestras would strike up and sound and music would play and the people would dance and they would celebrate and they would remember all that God had done. What's really important is why. I mean, that's great. It's great to do these things, but why? Why did they do this? Well, it's because they're remembering not just how God gave them shelter or God gave them water or God gave them manna, but that God gave them light. Because this light was evidence that God was giving them the very presence of himself. Like in other words, we got to understand this from this text. The feast, this feast, they were celebrating not just the provision of God, but the very presence of God. And this is why they use light. Because remember, like if we think back to that story, what did God do for the Israelites, especially with light? Well, if you were to flip back in Exodus chapter 13, it says in Exodus 13, as they're leaving Egypt, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night as a pillar of fire. For what? To give them light. So what was this pillar of light? Like I was thinking about this. It wasn't like merely some glorified GPS arrow, right? Just like floating around, turn left, turn right. But rather, it was the Shekinah glory of God's immediate presence. It was God's presence uniquely displayed to lead and protect and be with his people. And this matters. Like, this matters deeply because this means that, yes, God came down and he gave them light himself. But even more, in the light, he was giving himself. He was providing himself to his people. And so they would light this candle as the focal point of their celebration to remember not just God's provision, but his presence. And this is, this is the point Jesus is wanting to drive home, that we don't just have a God who will provide 
And we do, because he will. Our God will provide. It's who he is. But in this gospel, in this gospel of John, we see that we have a God who comes and he gives his very presence. If you're here with the journey, you remember the very first chapter, what did John tell us? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Or one translation, I really like the way they say this verse, God became a man and he moved into the neighborhood. I love that verse. And it's this truth that Jesus is wanting to make abundantly clear on this night as he shares these words, that we forever had the promise, not just of his provision, but his presence. Like we have a God who though he transcends everything, he will forever be with us. In fact, in a few chapters over, you'll read the high priestly prayer. That's what it's all about. And though he is infinite and eternal, he is intimately present with us in the here and now. So how, do, how does Jesus illustrate this? But this is what's really special, guys. Like, it not only on this, like, so it, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light this candelabra every night, except the last night. And that's why it's so important to know where we're at in John, because that's the night they're on. They're at the seventh night, the last night here in John chapter 8, verse 12. And on this very last night, they didn't light this candle. So it begs the question again, like, well, why didn't they light it? Like, why didn't they light the candle? And I was thinking, like, could be, is it just too much of a hassle? Like, potentially, this is like the last night of a party, right? Or the last day of a holiday. And, and they wanted a head start on taking down the decorations. Uh, I was thinking, it's like, I have two wonderful parents. Like, they, they are amazing, and I think this is recorded. Like, they are incredible, because my mom probably want to listen to it. Like, they were great. Um, but they have one weird thing about them. Like, one really strange, potentially off-putting thing that they do. Like, on Christmas Day, we take down the decorations. Like, on, okay, we have other. Okay, okay. Like, like here's what happens. Like, I'm, like, no exaggeration here. Like, we eat together. We share gifts. We talk. We laugh. But then before we go home, like, this is all true. Part of the Thompson family tradition is this experience of packing up all the boxes, taking down the tree, loading them back into the attic. And I don't just mean like maybe right before sunset. It's like we're flirting with before afternoon rolls around that this takes place. Like the rooms, they go from looking like Christmas, right, to just winter. That's what happens. It goes from cheerful to cold. And it's a good reminder there's grace for all of us. Like, if you're like my wife, you're like two pumpkin lattes away from putting up your Christmas tree. Um, we literally, a Michael Blue Blay song came on the radio, or on our playlist on the way here. Like, it is early. Um, or maybe you can mix in a Christmas hymn this year for some cheer. But like, is, is that what they're doing here, in, in essence? Are they, are they like these people? Uh, the party was essentially over. The holiday had all but ended. So while they're hanging around, it really had fizzled out. Not at all. That's not why they didn't like this candle. Like this was intentional and by design. Like what we have to understand is they were actually positioning themselves to intentionally remain in this cold, dark room in front of these cold, dark lamps to remember and feel the weight of the reality that the glory of God's light had not shown in their presence for centuries. Like guys, they had been without the presence for hundreds of years of God. It had been hundreds of years since God had revealed his glory in this way as they read about in New and the Old Testament. In fact, the prophet, prophet Ezekiel, he declares this. He says this in his book. There's this word he declares, Ichabod, which means glory, the glory is gone. Ezekiel is saying the glory, of the, the glory of God had departed from Israel. Well, what was the way that God had chosen to display his glory again? It was light, right? The lights turned off. The light had gone for years and years Moms and dads had kids who had kids who had kids, and the light didn't come back, right? The lights never came on. The light of the glory of God did not shine 
In fact, we know here for almost four centuries, as Jesus is talking to these people in this story, it had been complete silence. And so it was on this seventh night, when the light didn't shine, the attitude changed. There wasn't celebration, but there was sadness and even despair. And it was on this night, right in front of these unlit lamps in the temple, that in the darkness, because God's glory had left his people, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Like I was reading again, and it's really significant. It says in our, uh, in our text today, he said this in front of the treasury, which means Jesus was most likely standing right in front of those giant unlit candles that represented the missing glory of God. Like they're being without the presence of God. And in front of this, he says, I am this glory. I am this presence. I am the light of the world. I am God. Like not only am I he, I'm here. That's what he was telling them. Like that which you long for has arrived. Whoever follows me, like those who followed the light in the wilderness will have the presence of God. And this is what is key. In saying, I am the light of the world, again, he isn't just saying, I'll provide, like I provided for those that you remember during this feast. But more than that, I will be with you and I will give you myself. Like meaning Jesus was saying, I am the glory of God manifest before you. Therefore, I'm your only source of joy. I am your source of life. I'm the very thing you long to have. And so not only then do we have God's provision, but the promise of his presence. But there's even further implications of this then, and what Jesus is saying about himself. Because here we see Jesus, he's offering something completely different than any other religion, right? Like wrapped up in Jesus' statement here is actually the heart of Christianity. It's what we just sung. Like it's not just a mere philosophy that we ascribe to or we follow, but it's a person. That's what Jesus is saying. Like Jesus isn't offering a philosophy that if you can ascend from one place to the next in higher thinking, that maybe you can be enlightened to the meaning of life, right? Like if somehow some truth that you can find or discover can help transcend your spirit from the body to what really is or what's meant to be. Nor is he saying that if you can perfect this pattern of a good life that maybe, or, or live in such a way with right living that you can secure life for yourself. But instead he's saying, no, the light of life, it is a person, one who's fully God and fully man. And in him, the light of life, we have both the means and the end. Because in and from this person of Jesus Christ, Christ life is offered freely to, to, uh, to all who come in faith to see. And so when Jesus tells them this, he's saying that I am the only way that someone can know who, who God truly is. And so this is what's happening. We, we read verse 12, and now we have this huge chunk of text that take place. This dialogue again. Like you, you've, you've been reading this. Jesus will say something about himself or do something, and he enters into this discussion with the Pharisees, right? And this is what happens here. Um, what ensues is this back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus, and really what's happening is Jesus is choosing to engage them in their challenges as he continues to expand on and explain who he really is. Uh, and we don't really have time to unpack that whole conversation, or we'd be here all day. Um, but, but roughly every commentary I read uh, made these following verses into two groupings. And so he gave two groupings, and so we'll, we'll do it the same way. So first we're going to read verses 13 through 20 together, and then after that we'll read 21 through 29. So if, if you have your Bible, here we start in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. So he said, you're the light of the world. That's not true. That's what they're saying. Jesus responds, 
Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. Just real short on that. Jesus isn't saying that he doesn't judge. He's comparing his judgment towards theirs. Basically what he's saying is you judge by outward appearance. You look at someone and make an assumption and then assume what's true. I don't judge that way. So he's not saying he doesn't judge. He's, he's saying, I don't judge in the same way that you judge. But he says, if I do judge, my judgment is true because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So essentially, it's okay, if we go off your standards, needing two, two witnesses, you have me and the Father. Then they asked him, well, where is your Father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while they were teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, kind of as I mentioned, every scholar in one way or another groups these verses together, and really the summary that they give to each of these is what's happening in these verses is Jesus in, the, in his challenge and even in his rebuke is reiterating that he is God. I mean, that's the statement he's making in this dialogue. He's saying, no, I am God. But also, not only is he saying this, he also tells the Pharisees that the reason that they don't see him, the light of the world, is because they don't know the Father. So in, in those verses we just read, Jesus is not just claiming to be God, and he is, he's claiming that, but he's saying they don't see him because they don't know the Father. Two quick things. First, you, you can imagine about how well this went over with the Pharisees, right? Like, like this is the group because of what Jesus is telling them, moves in their plot to then kill him. In fact, it says the only reason that it doesn't happen here is because Jesus doesn't allow it to happen yet, right? He says, oh, this hour had not yet come. And so it was because he hadn't allowed it in his sovereignty that it doesn't take place yet in this chapter. I mean, they want to kill him. But the second thing, and I think the more important thing for our time uh, to draw from this text, there's this major tension then in what Jesus shares. And maybe you're thinking about it already. But if we think about what Jesus says here and its theological implications, and if we didn't know how he resolves it, we would be left just like the Pharisees to say, like, what do we do? Like, if we were honest in our hearts and take his words seriously. Because here's the problem. We know that no one can see and know the Father, right? On our own, we can't see and know the Father. And therefore, we can't see Jesus, the light of life. And Romans 1, if you're familiar with Romans 1, it confirms this, right? Because of our sin, we have forsaken the knowledge of God. Our hearts are darkened. And yet, what would Jesus say a few chapters over? He would say, well, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through him. It's Jesus' own words in this book recorded. So, so I'll break it down. Here's what's happening. Here's the problem then. Jesus is saying, we, we have to know him to have life. He's the light of life. We have to follow him. Yet, we can't know him unless we know the Father, but we can't know the Father unless we come to know the Son. Therefore, on our own, we can't come to know either, and we can't have the life that we need to have. What do we do? I mean, this is a big problem, right? This is a huge problem here. We have to be able to see the light to have life, and yet we can't rightly position ourselves to the Father or the Son. What do we do? We don't. We don't do, right? This has been John's entire message for us. Jesus did for us. 
John's already told us once, right? You know this verse, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In that very same chapter, just like here in the next few verses we're about to read in chapter eight, he also refers to the son of man being lifted up, how Jesus came to be cursed so that all who look on him and his death will be, le- will be blessed and live. What Jesus is saying is he is God. He's the light that you need but we can't look and see him. But he is coming to make a way so that you can be healed, so that your faith can be sight as you believe in him. Let's see how he says this in the next verses. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read uh, verses 21 through 29. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they question. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am him, or that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. Okay, in these verses, Jesus said, he's not just sharing who he is, like he was in the verses before, but now he's also telling what he came to do, Right? meaning that Jesus is not just the glory of God, but he's also the mediator of God too. What this means is, why it's so important, like without Jesus, we can't look onto the glory of God. If you're familiar, uh, a few chapters over from that verse in 13, or chapter 13 in Exodus, God sends his pillar of fire, right, and light and leads the people. And eventually, about 20 chapters later, Moses works up the boldness, his heart's burning, and he wants to see God. He's like, okay, I've seen the pillar of cloud. I've seen the pillar of fire, but I want to see you. He's like, I want to look inside the cloud. I want to see your face. What does God tell him? Like, what does God say? He says, you can't see me. Like, if you see me, it will kill you, Moses. Like, it would destroy you. It would crush you. You can't look onto me. We need a mediator. And we need one not just because the glory of God is simply too bright to look at, but because our hearts are so dark with evil. Like, you got to understand this. Like, it's not just like because of some weakness that we have that we can't look onto God's light. Like we don't need just like spiritual sunglasses. It's like, oh, we're just not ready for it yet. It's our sin. Like we must have a mediator do something about our sin if we could ever really look onto the light that is God. And this is why in these verses, Jesus says, when he is lifted up, right? When the son of man is lifted up, then we will be able to look on him and believe. Like guys, Jesus, he really came and he really died, and he really paid for our sin, that would result in us being crushed if, we, if he hadn't paid that price for us by the weight of God's glory that's described in this text. Like when Jesus was lifted up, like let's think together. Like when he died in our place, like let's unpack together what really happened. Like Romans 5, like it's so important what Jesus is actually saying here. What does Romans 5 tells us? It says, Christ demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First, here's what it doesn't mean. 
And this is so important. Like when Jesus did this, it wasn't as if Jesus had to reposition himself, right? Like he didn't have to do this act of supernatural, spectacular, one-time love in demonstration to reposition himself so that his light could shine. Like Jesus didn't go to Calvary or to the cross to prove his love. And when he really proved it, when he really demonstrated it, when he really showed it by paying the ultimate price, then he was there in this position and the light could really shine, right? The light was actually finally bright enough or maybe he elevated himself high enough to be over sin. Like guys, Jesus didn't have to position himself so light could be seen. Like this wasn't what was happening on the cross when the Son of God was lifted up. His light was always shining. The problem's never been with the light. He's never been lacking. And what's happening here with Jesus is saying that he didn't reposition himself, but rather he moved us. He changed our position. He brought us to him, right? He moved us back, back to him. Like we went from being children of wrath to children of mercy. He moved us from death to life, from darkness to light. We were dead in sin. We are now alive in Christ. We owed the wages of death. And now, get this, we are owed. It's owed to us, the very eternal inheritance that is the king. That's owed to us because of him. Like we were deserving full wrath, every measure of wrath, and he took it all. And now Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, he, right now, he sits on his throne. And do you know what he does for you? He doesn't just plead mercy for you. He pleads justice Like, think about this. Because of what he did on our behalf, we have credited to us his perfect life. He says, Father, give them justice. And justice means every ounce of his perfect life, full merit of everything he did. They're owed that because I paid it. We aren't restored to mere innocence and his mercy. We are blood-bought saints owed full privileges of Jesus' righteousness. He repositioned us. Like the day he was lifted up, as the sun was literally eclipsed, the Son of God in the darkness, in his death, bought us and therefore guaranteed to bring us into the light. And so this account ends in John 30. I read it real quick. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Like many put faith in him. And this morning, I want you to know what it's like to hear and believe Jesus. Like if you don't know Jesus, If you don't know him yet, like he has brought you here today so that you will hear. That's why you're here. He has sovereignly brought you into this room to hear his gospel. Like make no mistake, just as intentional of what he describes in this text that he went to do on the cross for you, he has brought you into this room because he wants to give that life to you. Like so this day, repent, believe in the Lord who loves you, who gave his life for you. But as I hope and as I know, many of you in this room do believe. I mean, verse 30 is your story. That is your testimony. After hearing these things, you believed in him. If that's you, you got to consider what does this really look like then? What does it look like to follow after the light of life? I mean, that's his call on our life, right? He says, not just look and see, but he says, but follow. We have to follow. How do I follow him then? What we know is as Christians is that real belief will produce real obedience. And this is why he says it. You've got to follow, follow the light, not just see it. Just as the Israelites, they believed the pillar of fire was his presence, and then they walked in obedience after it. We're called to follow in faith after this light. And so when Jesus gives us, gives us this call, we, um, I have like four applications, and then we're done. And so, uh, in fact, 
I struggled a little bit because how do you apply a text with people you don't know? It's always a lot easier when you, we know each other and we know the things that we need to confess, the things we're struggling with, the things we, we think God's calling to uh, in the community of a church. And so I had all these loose notes on laptop and paper and phone. And then I was listening just to Tim Keller's sermon. He had this application that almost became like, oh, wow, those are the bookshelves for all the ideas. And so if you ever listen to a Tim Keller sermon, you're like, Pulled that there directly from him. And so I won't hide it, but own thoughts, his shelves, and so uh, his headings. And so here's the first one he said I thought was really fitting. Like we have this call in John chapter 8 to live consistently. Live consistently. Like as Christians, as we are called to follow the light, it is with absolute consistency and integrity. I say that because in a room this size with this many people, even in my own heart, there's this tendency, right? to sin, and then to live in the dark. Like, I claim to follow God, and I live a different way in the dark. Like, there's pieces of me that I don't really want to confess, whether to him or to you. And we have to take warning, because John says not just in chapter 8, but in his letter, he says here in chapter 1 of 1 John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to believe him, right, yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Someone said this week, the darkness that we hide our sin in is very temporary. Like, as a Christian, the sin that you think you can conceal in this room, it's temporary. You can hide it for a little while and maybe even through the day that you die. But the sun is going to rise and come up on everything Jesus will reveal and expose all sin that has been left in the dark. Everything will come out. So don't live in fear. Live in repentance. Like confess, repent, believe, obey, follow the light, live in the light. Those Christians don't live differently or secretly in the dark. Second, don't just live consistently, but live attractively. Is there something wonderful or different or beautiful about your life? And there is. Like you're made in his image. I want you to hear that there is. Are you, are you walking in that though? Like God has uniquely made you and given you gifts, but are you following in that? Like how you live then towards other people should be attractive because of whose image that you bear. I heard someone say, I don't believe what they believe. I remember a student who, who didn't follow Jesus. I don't believe what you guys believe, but I wish I did because of how people in my connection group lived. And I thought that was some of those, one of the most beautiful statements I've ever heard. Like, I wish I believed, not just because what they, what they say, the gospel is beautiful, but even how they lived. There's something different. Like we have to understand this, the light, it not only exposes as it shines on us, but it also changes us. Yes, light exposes, but it also grows, right? It, it creates in us. And so we grow in the light of the world as we are sanctified as his new creation. So this week, think about, like, when you're out this week, those people that you speak to who maybe are under you that work for you or those that serve with you or even work with you, those who wrong you or even are rude to you, do they see something different in the way that you respond? Live attractively. Third, live courageously. If you live in the light, you will expose sin and therefore expose others in their sin. They'll be a natural byproduct of it, right? Not because you live better than them, you don't think you're better than them, but because you will reflect God's glory in your life. Matthew tells us, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
simply by living in a way that glorifies God then will expose others because it'll naturally have to hinder their, their cheating or their corruptness or their prejudice simply because you can't participate in it, right? Just nothing else because you can't join in that because you follow after the light of life. It'll hinder it. So follow the light. Live in a way that honors the Lord and live with courage. It's not just good or even better, but this life he's called you to is truly best. Like you may, have, you may be walking in this now. As Christians, we will experience, people will say, like, put out the light. Can, can you stop? Put that light out. Don't. Like, don't be discouraged, but rather take courage. That means you're really are following after the light of life. And if you're a Christian and you don't ever hear that, maybe ask yourself, am I really living courageously as one who follows after Jesus? Am I living obediently? Do I reflect the life, the light that is my Savior's? Okay, last. So we live consistently, we live attractively, we live courageously. Lastly, live hopefully. Live full of hope. Guys, the sun has risen. Like Jesus has risen. Yet day has not dawned, right? We, we, we live right now, like as we gather together every week in this in-between world, there is this already not yet tension that marks every aspect of our lives as Christians, right? Like the proverbial sun, it is rising because the promised sun, Jesus, he is, he is risen and he is coming back. And if he has risen from the dead and he has, we, we, we can be assured that he will surely return. This is more guaranteed than tomorrow's dawn, right? Like we can, as surely as tomorrow morning, Monday morning, the sun's gonna rise, we know he's coming back. He will be here. Yet we have to have hope. We have to remember not to lose hope because it's so easy in this time of waiting to, to maybe not even just lose hope, but to place our hope in something else, right? Um, in something lesser, or even if we're honest, something that's just merely sooner. It's like, I can count on this because it's sooner. I, I, I see the end of that, how it might provide for me. Like, don't give up and don't settle. Like, don't go back to being a person of the night simply because dawn feels so far away. Live for the morning. Live for the dawn of daylight, the light of heaven that is coming that we are promised will never have an end. And this is important because that, that's, that's easy to say on a Sunday morning, right? But it's also really conceptual. And each of you are walking in here with something, right? That is really difficult, that is really heavy, that is, that is real, and maybe even measurable, and it's hard. It's like as you're hurt, or as you've been betrayed by people, as you walk in real suffering, when your body literally breaks down, when your heart is broken, when you bury loved ones, when you draw near to the day of death yourself, live with the hope that the light of the world has come and he's coming again, and this time to forever make all things new. Yes, we are merely in the last hours of the dark before dawn. That's true. I don't know when he's coming back, but he is, and it's near with each coming day. We are one day closer and yet, even now, we're not without light. Even before that comes, right, the, the dawn finally comes. Right now, in seeming darkness, we're not without light. What does Jesus say? He's the light that shines through the darkness. He's the light of the world. What is the world? The world's this. He compares it to John in other places. He uses light and dark all the time as metaphors. The world's darkness. And he's saying, even before I come back and light of heaven shines forever, I shine in the darkness. 
And we know this because this gospel that John records for us is, is Jesus promised us, and then he applies it in our own hearts to the presence of the Holy Spirit, that even now he shines through the darkness. Jesus promises that he is the light of the world, and he was lifted up so that all who look unto his death can once again live and see. I guess surely, guys, as the day grew dark, as he died for us, we can then trust now his light is ours, and it will stay in our life forever, and then one day produce for us eternal life forever with him. So believe the Lord. Like, trust the Lord today. And I'm getting ready to pray for us, and when we do, let's worship the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these promises. Um, I'm thankful that I don't have to sit as those who had to come up with a choice to believe. I mean, God, that, that would have been that would have been harder. That's all we had. Even your statement in this text, I would have prayed that your Holy Spirit would have pricked our hearts, but you've given us a full gospel. And not only just your words, Lord, but you demonstrated your full work for us. We know who you are, we know what you did, and we know why you did it. God, I pray then that sin will not continue to hold on to our hearts, that we will not trust in it. God, but rather we'll be freed from the master that it used to be and we will walk after the light of life. Though we will know the freedom that is you as we walk in sight after you. And God, that we won't do it alone. There's a reason why we open your word with brothers and sisters, because this isn't meant to be lived out in isolation. God, this is a light to be enjoyed, to be worshiped, to be seen together. So even in these next coming moments, as we have the opportunity to sing back promises of who you are, God, to, to praise you for the glory that is yours, may we, may we look upwards, Jesus, and we see your face because we have full access to it. God, you will not hide yourself from us anymore because you have made a way, but may we be reminded who sits next to us, God, that we sing this together, that we share in this together. This is a hope that we have together. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.